This is the often requested and long anticipated earning their stripes draft special. My name is Danny Martinez alongside Ian Smith. Ethan is sitting this one out today. But like I joked last week, if you are team Ian, then this is the episode for you. Because man, Ian is going to lead this one today. Ian, let the folks know how excited you are, brother. I mean, I've been waiting for this probably since we started. I mean, the draft is my stuff, so I hopefully can bring you guys some information today that I've put some work in. You guys will enjoy. And yes, I'm very excited for this. Yeah, oh, trust man. me. Trust me. Ian has, I don't know how many notes already Ian has. I don't know all that. Like, we're going to freelance this today, but if you have been waiting for Ian, this is the episode. This is the special. He's, he's going to shine through for us. Um, I actually want to start off real quickly because... Something that happens with MLB draft, and I know you know this, Ian, is that it's just different than the NBA draft, than pro football drafts. It's different than almost every other draft because the financials in this draft matter a lot, right? So we're going to hear, y'all are going to hear us talking about going under slot or going over slot or slot value, or do they have enough money in the pool? Whatever the case is, the financials really is something to be locked in here. So I want to I want to give you the floor, brother, so you could just explain a little bit about how the MLB draft is special, about the pool money that we have, the underslot, what it means to go underslot, overslot, whatever the case may be. Well, with the MLB draft, you get a, like a certain value, a certain bonus pool every year to start the draft. And going into 2019, the Marlins are starting with $13 million and $45,000, which is third best in the league. Um, what that means is every pick is valued a certain dollar value. Like, say, the first, the fourth pick overall is valued at $6,664. Just sounds like a bunch of numbers. But with that pick, we have the option to go at value with a player who is valued at that same number, same number or we could go someone like a Brett Beatty, who is a high school player right now, who's under slot and to save money on our picks later in the draft. So then sometimes what, what teams will do with that is that they'll go under slot with their top pick, right? If they're in the five, six, seven range, whatever the case is, they'll go under slot, they'll save some money, and then they'll try to basically purchase or buy players that are lower in the board, but would demand more cash. Now, I don't know, and we're going to talk about this, and, and I'll let you get back to where you were going. I don't know if that's what I want the Marlins to do this draft. Um, there seems to be a very small amount of players that would fit that bill for what we're looking for. But that's the mentality about going under slot and over slot. It's that you're playing with the financials of who you could draft at that certain pick. But but go ahead, Ian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're playing with the financials. If you're, if you're thinking you can get a guy that you absolutely love at your next pick, if you have one in the com- competitive balance picks or in the <clears throat> added picks in the first round. Uh, say the Marlins are, are sitting at $2 million at their pick 35 today. If they went under slot and were falling in love with, with a player who's commanding $4 million in the first round and a really tough sign, they can go under slot on their first pick, which would be not in my favor, but they could do this and sign somebody in the second round or in the competitive bounce round. That would be an overslot pick. Um, they haven't done that in recent years. They signed a player over slot last year, but it was very slight. Um, that was with Cyrus Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this year, I feel like they should go strictly to, with their with their slot values at all their picks. Um, I don't believe they should go under slot or over slot anywhere. Um, the values there at every at every spot they're at at pick four thirty five and at pick excuse me forty six. I have pick fifty on my notes. I don't know why, but. Uh, yeah, um, I do believe Miami will stick with their slot values this year. 
And if that's the case, then I feel like we were in a good spot going into the draft. Yeah, and and I'll second that. We were actually just talking about this. You know, sometimes a draft just lines up for you perfectly, right? I mean, it'd be beautiful to have the number one pick, but regardless of that, sometimes it lines up perfectly where you get that CBA, where you get that uh, competitive balance pick. And like you just reiterated, the Marlins have three in the top 50. You know, this isn't, um, again, this isn't pro football or the NBA where you could start trading picks and, and you could accumulate a bunch of and allocating a bunch of picks. This is the Marlins are just in one of those perfect years where they could get three top 50 players or draftees. And there's no reason to go under slot with that. There's no reason to go under slot and wait for an overslot pick. No, don't play with that number four. And this is just my opinion, of course. Right. But don't play with that number four. Go and get the value that you need at that four. It is your first rebuilding draft. And we'll talk now about some of the players that we might be looking at for number four. But go get that value at number four, knowing that you are still going to have two more picks in the top 50 that are going to give you solid value. Uh, I I would be really disappointed, right? I'll put myself out there, really, if we go under slot, um, aside of maybe one or two players, which you're going to hit on in a second. But let's go ahead and introduce the folks to who we might be looking at for that number four slot which again is valued at six million six hundred and sixty four thousand what are some of the names that you think you would be looking at oh well well, so far going into this year it's been a bunch of names i mean uh miami's really loved i mean miami fans have loved andrew vaughn since day one he's just tears the cover off the ball every time he plays he's kind of a shorter stout uh, player at, at 511 which is got some weird numbers to it we'll go over that later but He's a player who's been on Miami's board for a really long time. The player that I've fallen in love with the last two months and has just blown up the draft boards is J.J. Boudet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kid is a left-handed batter who just oozes swag. I mean, he ha- he's uh, led the ma- or led the Division One with 25 homers this year. He's a Golden Spikes finalist, and he's leading probably one of the best lineups in baseball easily. <clears throat> he's the pick that I would fully see – Miami going with if he's on the board at four, but there's some names that could blow that up. CJ Abrams has been a Miami executive favorite since day one. He is the tools, probably got the most tools in the top five picks in the draft. I mean, that includes Bobby Witt. Uh, he's, he's really talented. He's got 80 grade speed. He hits the ball. Well, he can play all over the diamond, but I don't really see the value in his bat at the four pit at the fourth overall pick. He reminds me a lot of a, a Bryce Turang from two years from last year, who had a huge bunch bunch of draft helium going into the year. Was a possible for, oh, first overall pick as an underslot, but ended up dropping all the way to twenty three overall. <clears throat> that's who Abrams reminds me of a lot, and that's not going to get some love by a lot of people. But right, um, that's what I see in him. So I want to see Miami go the opposite route they've went in, in recent years, and that's the power route. We haven't went power since probably the last college draft pick we had, and that's Colin Moran and what's he? Let's see, 2000, 2013 was the last college draft draft mm-hmm. that we had, and that was Colin Moran, and he was supposed to be the real deal, and he's now showing it a little bit in majors, but no longer in our system. So those are a few guys that I really love, and if we're going to go under slot, there's one guy that I'd really be okay with going under slot, and that'd be Bryson Stott. I don't know how much under slot he would be, um, it would probably be half a million dollars or less, but he's a talented player. Uh, he's a left-handed bad play shortstop, can really can really handle his position. He's got a strong arm, shown some immense power this year out of nowhere, and he's really 
control the control the plate well. And he's a player I've been talking about forever. If you guys follow me on Twitter, you know that. But he's a guy who, if we're going to go under slot in any in any in any aspect, it's going to be Bryson Stott from my eyes. Yeah, and and you've sold me on Stott too. That when I when I said earlier, I'd be okay with maybe one or two players there. That would be, you know, if I'm being honest, it'd be towards the lower of of my totem pole. I, I really don't want low, uh, under slot at all. I want. I want a Vaughn. I want a Blade. You know, like we, we didn't speak about Hunter Bishop here. I would almost, almost also be okay with a bat like that. But I want um, that value pick. And you hit on it, right? And we have it here in the notes, this concept that the Marlins have two really intriguing parallels. So number one, the Marlins in their history, and I know we're dealing with new ownership, but they, they replicated this last year, hardly ever go college in their first round. Right. It, it's something that they 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 love the prep. They love the high ceiling. This is a year where I say, no, you're going to go college. You know, if Danny GM was over there, I would go with exactly the names that you said. I would go college and I would go hit tool and power tool, which is also something different, as you have here in the notes as well, that they've been going with that athletic body type. Right. Or that they go with that athlete. And, yeah, the athletes can also hit, but it's not exactly that pure advanced bat. And if you follow me at all on Twitter, you know that's what I want from this draft. I want that at four. I want that at 35. I want that at 40. I want it across the entire first round and, and competitive balance because that's what we need right now. We it's, need, it's what the system calls for, you know? Right, exactly. It, it's, it's what the system calls for. And quite frankly, it's also what this draft like gives. It's what yep. this draft yields. Every single every single outlet that you look at and with your own eyes, you see that it's a bat heavy draft where you can get a really solid bat in your competitive balance. You could get a really solid bat with those first three picks that you have in the 50. So uh, those dynamics where it's college versus prep, like consider me on the college side. And when we're talking about high ceiling athleticism versus pure bat, consider me on the bat side. Um, That's something to talk about with Andrew Vaughn. You have a really interesting pinpoint or a really interesting stat with Vaughn and his height. Go ahead and share that with them so then we could kind of talk a bit about it. Yeah, I was actually just reading about Vaughn because I've just been doing a bunch of stats on him and I came across a stat on Baseball America that since 1947, there has been a total of four first basemen who have played more than 20 games that are primarily right-handed first basemen and that under, this, under the uh, height of six feet. Excuse me. So four players since 1947 have played more than 20 games at first base. That is an insane stat to me. I mean, granted, you don't think of short first baseman all the time. And Andrew Vaughn really breaks the mold with the way he controls the bat. But that scares me a little bit. I mean, I don't I don't care any way you look at it. I mean, he's luck, look, I mean, looking to be the highest drafted first baseman since Pat Burrell, 96. Mm-hmm. And he's a talent, but. If we're just going to look at numbers and history repeating itself, then that number scares me. And if he breaks the mold, then he breaks the mold. But I don't want to base our first rebuilding draft on a guy who's going to be possibly not breaking the mold and possibly not be able to handle the position going forward. And that scares me a little bit. Yeah, and, and it's funny. Ian Ian will take that stance, and he's taken that stance from the beginning. And Ian will be the first one to tell you that he's in the minority when it comes to, I guess, Marlins marlin's perception or opinion on that right like we always do the polls or everyone's like oh why don't you want vaughn even if vaughn is on the like i see your twitter line even if even if vaughn is there why wouldn't you take vaughn but you've stood you've stood by that and and when you make that kind of case i mean look it makes sense he would be a statistical anomaly he would be the out the outlayer of 
of not even the decade of a century. You know, this is someone who, if, if we're looking at his profile, okay, they have him listed as six feet. A lot of people think he's 5'11". Again, he's a righty, so you're not looking at that lefty power from first base. If you look at his grades, they're pretty uh, unanimous across different scouts. It's usually a 60-60 with hit and power, but he's going to be limited to first. Now, if you look at that, number one, right-handed first basemen typically don't go this high in the draft anyway. Then you're definitely not taking right-handed first basemen that are under six feet this high in the draft. And like you said, it's your first rebuilding draft. Are you really going to take a risk on a statistical outlier? I, for the for the purpose of just not parroting and agreeing with everything, will say sure. <laughs> I I will say that his bat for me, right? And I've never seen him live. Right? When I've only seen Andrew Vaughn and JJ Bolade over their games on my Xfinity package when they're playing. You know, I, I, it's uh, for me, it's enough. I see a, a bat that is just pure. I think that he's the most advanced bat. I know Rushman gets that praise, and Rushman's just a special breed. Um, um, Adley Rushman expected to go first overall. But even Baseball America has that kind of train of thought that his bat might truly be ideal enough for him to be that statistical anomaly. Um, but it is it is scary. It is scary, and it is a reason why I could see Going on to the second guy who I think it's between one of these two individuals, really. I do think that it's between Andrew Vaughn or J.J. Blade, right? So your guy. Yeah. I think it's between either Marlon's Twitter's guy and Andrew Vaughn and someone who I would be happy with if they take. And then your guy with J.J. Blade. And, and you can speak a little bit about the connections that the Marlins executives have with him as well. Um, but J.J. Blade then seems to fit a little bit more of that mold that you would draft this high. A lefty. Absolutely. He's an Absolutely. outfielder, and, and you could talk to that, but he also has that advanced bat. He also has some solid power. So so talk to us a little bit about Blade. I just want to touch on one, one last time. Like, yeah. I just I feel like I'm a pessimist on him, and I don't want to be like that because he's a great player, and if Miami does take him at four overall and he's there, I will be ecstatic. I mean, I'll say that now, but I just there's just so many things about him that makes me want to go the opposite way. And, I mean, I don't want to keep keep harping on him, but um, that's what I'll do. I mean, I've watched video of Fred reports that he's maybe maybe benefiting from a small ballpark in, in, in Cal. I mean, that could be wrong. It is what it is, whatever. But, again, the peripherals don't blow, out, blow off the page for me. He walks a bunch. He hits for power, yes. But the size bothers me, and we're just going to leave it at that. Anywho, but on J.J. Bidet. And I'll ask you this. Is there anything is there anything to the individual that says, you know what, I know that he's limited. I know that he's going to be a, the shortest first baseman ever, but the, the DH might be coming to the NL. Why not have yes. your your guy there? That's that's a huge point because I feel like the DH will be in the NL probably within the next two years with the way they're trying to change the rules every year now. But, um, yeah, I mean, if that's the way they're going to go and he's the most advanced bat in the draft and that's the case that anybody will make, and I'll agree with that, then, then yes, I'm a happy camper if they go that route. He's going to be a stud, but if he's not, then I don't want to be the guy who says, yes, let's go all in and draft Andrew Vaughn when he ends up blowing out in a few years, you know? Right, the way so, that the stats would say. Gotcha. Yes, gotcha. absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to go with my guy that I've fallen in love with, and that's J.J. Bleday. I fully believe if he's on the board at four that Miami will draft him, even if Andrew Vaughn is there. He has some connections with the scouting director in Miami, DJ Shivlik. He was the hitting coach at Vanderbilt when Bode got there. 
Bladet is just as true of a hitter as you can imagine when you watch him swing. The, the swing's a tad bit unorthodox. It reminds me, the, the comparison I put together just to make Marlins fans happy here is a little bit Yelich, a little bit Giancarlo from the left side. He's, yeah, I he, saw that. He's a big guy. He's about 6'3", 220 pounds. He's stayed true to his swing his entire career. Before this year, he'd only hit six home runs in a season, and that was a little bit worrisome. But there's nothing to say that he came in and changed a bunch of a bunch of things going into his junior year to hit all these home runs. He's staying true to what he's known, and he's just put, just hitting the ball now, just really tapping into that raw power that he has. Uh, I see him as a, a true right fielder going forward. He has a plus arm. He has a little bit slow instincts, but that's something that can be corrected. Um, if that's not the case in the outfield, he has the potential to be moved to first base. I mean, if that's what we're going to stick on this year is first base draft draft help, then Bleday could be as much draft help at first base as Andrew Vaughn beat going forward. He's a big body. He's a left-handed bat, and he is just a stud. I mean, 25 home runs this year is scary. I mean, when I remember watching Pedro Alvarez at Vanderbilt back in the day, and he just looked like a freak of nature. And he's blown his years out of the water already in one season. So that's just scary to watch. And just the connections that Miami has with him and the love that I've seen online and reading reports they have with this guy, I could really see Miami going this route at four. Yeah, and, and you hit like on three things there that I think are pivotal. Number one, I'll start going, I'll go backwards. The connection that they have. It seems like the Marlins just know that Vanderbilt system and they know the day well. And I think that that matters to a certain extent because part of drafting is ambiguity, is not knowing exactly what that person is and what that person will become. The more you know an individual, the more you've seen them in the batting cages, the more you're around that person, the less the ambiguity exists. So I think I'm really, really comfortable with Lede being the pick at four. I think that he will be the pick as long as Vaughn is not there. And then if Vaughn is there, it's a question. It's just a question mark. I, I wouldn't know. I don't know. Are they going to trust are they going to trust the pure bat, even though it goes against the size? Or are they going to go with the guy that they know? Um, for me, you know, people have asked me who I would have at four. I will always continuously have the answer that Vaughn is one or Blade is one. And then the other one is 1A. And then we could go with two, three, and four. Because I am okay with either of them two there. So the first point was that they know the system or that they know the player. The second point was the first base point. Yeah. I mean, look, you look at his profile and you change his outfield to first base. He's a better first base profile than than Vaughn is by a long, long stretch. Six foot three, over 200 pounds. He's a long guy. He's 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 good. He would be able to make that transition. If not, we stick him in a corner outfielder and he's perfectly fine as well. And then the third thing, which is the first thing you mentioned, was the fact that it does not seem like this power is artificial or inflated or helium or not on something that's of a strong foundation, right? Because that was the thing with Bleday. His first few years at Vanderbilt, like you said, there was no power. There was nothing. Like there was contact. There was there was no power, nothing when the terms of power, but there was everything else. And then all of a sudden he returns this year and I think I think he's leading here. He's among the leaders, right? Of home runs. Yeah, leading I think leading division one right now currently. Yeah. So 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 then the question is, all right, is that inflated? Are we looking at something that's artificial? I'm not talking about like him using things. I'm just saying, you know, some change that isn't sustainable. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like, again, you reiterated this. He stuck to his approach. His body simply grew and his swing as the more he started replicating it, the more power he was yielding. And all of a sudden now he's this dynamic home run hitter, you know, so I think that I would be more than happy 
with Lede at four. I also think I would be happy with Vaughn at four because I really believe that over the next collective bargaining, the DH is coming over. And then you have someone that could be at first base, which for what it's worth, I'll add this. Um, I, I, I get the, the stat also that you gave us. But I'll also just say that I have seen Derek Dietrich and Martin Prado and Miguel Rojas man first for like the last three years. Yeah. And when something like that is what's happening, I have a little bit more faith that someone can mold Vaughn into yeah. a first baseman that's undersized. Um, but that's... the point still stands. Uh, so with these, with number four, Blade Vaughn, you hit a few other names before. Is there anyone that you would want to highlight or maybe the reason for why we might go prep with CJ Abrams if he's there or something to that extent? <laughs> Uh, absolutely. I mean, CJ Abrams is known to be Derek Jeter's favorite in the draft. I've been I've been reading, and somebody's been told me when I was at the stadium last few weeks, um, and that's the executives and Jeter both love Abrams, and it's hard not to love the guy. He's got a ridiculous amount of speed. He plays shortstop. He's got good instincts, but in my eyes, he's going to be a, a center fielder going forward. And if not a center mm-hmm. fielder, he's going to be a second baseman. He just doesn't have the true move the true body movements at shortstop he's got the arm to handle the position but i just feel like his speed will be utilized so much better in center field going forward that i think he's going to make the make the move and i just i don't see i don't see the need in us drafting a number 4 at number 4 another bat that's fitting the profile of literally everybody we've either signed or drafted in the past 2 years mm-hmm. and Granted, that's it's working out. We're showing some improvement in the minor league system, but power's gonna have to come. And if we're gonna talk about power, and I'm gonna bring out the underslot thing one more last time, yep. a name that came up on Fangraphs this week is Brett Beatty mm-hmm. at underslot pick. He is a Texas third baseman who probably profiles as a first baseman going forward. He's extremely old for a high school player. He'll be 19 in six months on draft day, which is quite surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he would be is the name that's popped up for for the for the Marlins at an underslot pick, and that really really scares me on a lot of levels because drafting a an older first base prospect who hasn't seen top level competition at almost twenty years old with the fourth pick overall would be an uber mistake in my eyes. Yep, just so, an incredible risk. Yeah, so I just I don't see them going that route, but I just had to highlight it because he's came up on some prestigious sites and on some mock drafts. So that's just a name I'd like to highlight there. But I mean, really, it really comes down to, I think three names at four at the end of it. And that'll be Abrams, Vaughn and Lede. I do feel like Rushman wit will be gone for sure. In those first three picks, mm-hmm. I do not know what's going to happen at three. Um, I could see White Sox going one of two ways with Abrams or, or Vaughn, but right. We'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, you never know. So, I mean, we're, we're going to see what happens on June 3rd. But in my eyes, it's going to come down to Bidet, Vaughn, or Abrams. And, and I agree. I agree. I think that then you have, like, tertiary names like Riley Green, right? Riley Green is a prep advanced, advanced bat. But a lot of question marks where he would line up defensively. And, again, it's a prep bat. And that's you're adding two plus more years to the ETA than you would over an advanced Absolutely. college bat. 
Hunter Bishop is a college guy who has a significant amount of power, but the hit tool doesn't seem to be there. So again, that would be another risk. He, I mean, his 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 power tool is sixty across most sites. Looks like um, a freaking nature. Yeah, absolutely. Which is someone who could fit both the bill of the, you know, athleticism and of the power, but the hit tool isn't there. And then, do we again really need that? I, I'm I'm a plus hit tool guy in this draft. I want a bat in our system that you can look at and say that swing is going to play and he'll be up in two and a half, three years. I, I need that this year because we don't have that. You know, yeah, the reality. You can't do it across the whole system. Don't exactly. Look. Exactly. And, and, and that's, that's the issue, right? We need to fill that and we can't fill it with another volatile bat, which would seem to kind of be where Hunter Bishop's profile leads you. And then I'll just say this for the Beatty pick, man, if they go Beatty underslot, why don't you just go underslot with Young? Because Josh Young is, is similar. As a matter of fact, he gets comped to yeah. Beatty. So Young is a one year advanced version of Beatty. Um, you know, he's coming out of college, out of Texas Tech. I mean, with me, I would have, I think it was fan graphs. I think you had mentioned it. Yeah. When they sent that out, my, my heart had a little skip beat because yeah, this is rough. not, it's not the year to do this. It's not the year to have that kind of risk play at your first overall pick in your first rebuilding draft. See, there's a difference between risk with Beatty and risk with the most advanced bet in the world, you know, Andrew Vaughn at the moment in this draft, right? Like, I'm okay with eating that amount of risk i'm not okay with eating the risk that comes with no. Beatty. all right so if that's who we're looking for at number one and before we move on to not number one but with the first pick before we move on to our second pick um let's really quickly say what the outlets what the mock drafts are, are showing right now so we have baseball america fan graphs 2080 baseball cbs sports and pipeline three of the five agree with ian Three of the five go with J.J. Blade at number four. So Fangraph, CBS Sports, and Pipeline in their most recent mock drafts all have the Marlins selecting J.J. Blade. quite frankly, for the all the same reasons that Ian said. There's a connection there. He's an advanced bat. His ETA would only be around two years or so. It would fit the timeline that, interestingly enough, Adam Jones um, in his interview with, I'm not sure who it actually was with, but it was a great interview, him talking about the rebuilding process. That's the timeline he gave us. He said, you know, we have this three to five year window of building a sustainable team. That 2021 year that we always kept talking about and hypothetically putting out. Finally, a Marlins executive comes out and says that, like, look, 2021 is really the time that we're supposed to be competing. He would th this year's draft, if you get an advanced bat, would fit that timeline. Wouldn't Absolutely. be the same if you get a prep bat. But nonetheless. That's why J.J. Blade would be a good pick there. Baseball America, you know, that's my personal favorite. Goes with Andrew Vaughn, who also seems to be my personal favorite. So I'm telling you, there's just something in the blood with, with Baseball America and myself. 2080 Baseball is the only one that has this going prep. And I love 2080 Baseball. I would be surprised. I'd be surprised. I mean, the board would have to fall Rushman, Witt, and then um, Vaughn, which could happen. And then the Marlins would have to sit there. And basically, what 2080 Baseball is doing there is saying their executives are going to beat out their direct their their scouting directors, you know, the executives of, of um, Denbo and Jeter, who are supposedly linked with Abrams, will get the final word and then it'll be Abrams instead of Blade. So it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, I think Ian will agree with me on this. The one thing that I can say is that it's a beautiful pick and a beautiful year to be at number four. You will leave this pick with a top elite, top shelf talent as long as they don't go under slot and risk it. Um, but if it's one of the four that we keep mentioning, you know, Marlins fans should be happy. And I, and I think Ian will be with me on that one. Um, 
all right. So then what about the other two picks that we have? What are some names that we should be zoning in on for those two value picks? Well, if we're going to talk about risk, I think risk might be addressed at pick 35. There's some names there that could be risky, but could be extremely beneficial down the road. The first thing I'm going to bring up, that's Reese Hines. Um, he was once on our board going four overall to us probably the early last year. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy has ridiculous power. It's, I mean, a grade 70 plus, probably anywhere you're going to look for it. He's currently playing shortstop, probably looks at a third base or maybe corner outfield going forward. He's just a freak. I mean, the hit tool is not really there. He strikes out a good, a good amount, but he hits the ball a long way. Um, he, he he reminds me a little bit of Eloy Jimenez. Um, he's he's a good pick. I mean, we'd have to probably go a little bit under slot in the first round to get him at 35, but he's a guy who I really love that the Marlins would look at. I mean, it'd be risky, but he just has so much potential there that he could be a great name to pick at 35. A few other guys are both prep bats as well, or prep players as well, and that's Hunter Barco out of Jacksonville. He's a, he's a left-handed pitcher. He's big. He's funky. He's got great stuff. He's got three plus pitches. Um, he's a Florida commit. He's going to be kind of a tough sign coming out. But if we can get him at 35, that's a huge win for us. I know it's a prep pitcher again, but he's great. I mean, he's got good stuff. His stuff looks like it'll play for a really long time. It's easy. He's got good walk to K numbers. I mean, I like what I see out of him. And the last guy I'm going to bring up at 35 is. Matthew Lugo, he's kind of a lower-rated prospect. He's toolsy as hell. He's a University of Miami commit. Oh, the he Marlins is, love that. You know it. He is he is Carlos Beltran's nephew. He is a he's a he's an absolute gamer. He's going to Beltran's uh, academy currently in Puerto Rico. He's shown up against top-level competition all year long. He's been at the perfect game. He's been in Jupiter. Um, he's got an exit velocity on some of his balls, clocking in the high nineties, once in ninety-seven. I mean, he's a he's he's a talented guy. I mean, he's rated probably in the low seventies or eighties on most boards, but he's a guy I think the Marlins could take a risk on at thirty five, just for what they see in him and just all the Uber towels, excuse me, the Uber tools are drooling over. So, I really those are three names that I really like to see there. There's a few other guys that they could look at as college bats with Greg Jones, as Craig Craig Mish, excuse me, Greg Jones, as Craig Mish pointed out this week. He is a shortstop out of North Carolina Wilmington who just burns on the base pads. He's got 80-grade speed. He's a young guy, 21 years old. <clears throat> he's, he stole 30-plus bases this year. He's another project pick just because of the hit tool, but he's a guy who could really really add some athleticism on the base pads for us, and that's a good pick at 35 as well. Yeah, I, I love two names. I love all the names you gave us, but I love two names, and I'll highlight two names there. Number one, Matthew Lugo, all right? I know you're Mr. Gator, all right? I'm going to be happy regardless of what happens because if he doesn't sign, he gets to come to Coral Gables. He gets to play for the U. He gets to continue beating the Gators, and I'm really I'm really okay with that. But I will say this. When it comes to Barco, I genuinely believe that he will be a steal for someone oh, yeah. in that range. And this is why. Over the last maybe decade, we've started to see a transition. I'm going to call it the Tyler Kolick effect, where we have stopped looking at prep pitchers because they have one specific amazing tool. 
right? We've stopped drooling over that. We've stopped drooling over the one guy that has a 70 fastball or the one guy that has this, you know, 65 off speed or curve or whatever the case is. And little by little, maybe it's the analytics, maybe it's the advanced scouting that started to come into play. We've started looking at guys that have a profile like Barco at the prep level, not at the college level, but at the prep level where it's, it is, it's not average, but it's consistent across the board, right? It's a, 55 60 fastball 55 slider 55 change of 50 55 control kind of that kind of situation where you're no longer betting like we used to on the 98 mile per hour or 96 mile per hour at the at the high school level fastball we're betting on the entire profile for me if the marlins would be able to come out of this draft with one of the guys that we highlighted at four and then somehow also be able to sign Barco and take him away from UF. Also, how interesting that the two we highlighted are Gators and, and Hurricanes. Oh, it's oh, almost yeah. like there's a bias in here. Um, the if, if they come out of that and they steal Barco away from, from you guys, what a draft. Oof. What a draft. Because I understand. I understand that we are all tainted and, and scorned with the prep arms that the Marlins have basically failed yeah. at at assessing. But that's the difference. We're not selling on one lottery ticket with Kolek and a fastball here. We're selling and we're buying rather on four average to plus pitches at age 18 that you would feel the fish would be able to develop um, moving forward. So I, I personally am a really big Hunter fan, I, Barco fan. I believe that he's going to be something special. And if the fish are in a position to go there and somehow steal him away from UF, what an absolute first two picks. Absolutely, man. I think he's probably one of my favorite pitchers in the draft overall. I mean, this, this is a very weak pitcher draft completely. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, prep-wise, he's probably one of my highest-rated prep guys over somebody, as you talked about, with the 98 fastball, and that's Daniel Esposino. Right. I mean, he was a guy who was looking at top five picks. And now he's, I'm seeing him on some mock, mocks dropping out of the first round. I mean, teams are understanding that the volatile 100-mile-an-hour fastball in high school is not the best route to go anymore. And I'm so glad the Marlins are being connected a little bit to Barco and, and a player like him. I mean, he's just a prototype MLB starter. I mean, going forward, the kid's just going to add size. He's 6'4". I mean, he's got a sale-type delivery. I mean, what, what, what couldn't you like about him? So I would absolutely love the Marlins went that round at 35. And I really don't understand why it's taken so long for teams to pick up on that. Like, I'm not trying to pretend that I know anything that scouts don't. OK, I understand that scouts look at the very specific um, intricacies of the game that I won't even pretend uh, to be aware of. But in my mentality, this is just it, it's sensical to me that you understand that a high schooler with 95, 97 can get away with anything because most high school bats, you're facing 16 year olds, 17 year olds, not even who are not going to be able to catch up to that. You give me the profile of someone that's only pumping 92, but has a nice change, has a feel for off speed, which is something that most of our prep picks, well, not really, but the ones that have failed, I guess we'll say that, uh, don't have. They don't have a feel for the command and they don't have a feel for their secondaries. They get by with pumping fastball, fastball, fastball. I'm not sure why it's taken so long for the baseball community to, to transition from saying, wow, Kolek has to be the first pick to now realizing, okay, maybe we need a little bit more of a complete profile. We will give you a little bit less velo as long as you show us that you actually have a changeup, which is the most dangerous pitch in baseball, that you actually have an off speed that could get people off balance, and that you know where the ball is going instead of just pumping it out of the zone and freshman high schoolers being able to swing by your fastball. So I, that's like my little rant, but it's also the purpose of saying, you know, that's why Hunter Barco would be so special at that at that slot and not that value and yeah they're gonna have to pry them out of Gainesville 
Um, but I think that it'd be worth the risk for having and adding an arm like that. So that's at 35. What about at 46? At 46, we're going to go probably going back. To, I want to go back to college bats again. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like we have to double down in this draft on as many power bats as we can. And two names I'd really like to point out at, at bats at 30, at 46 would be Logan Wyatt, the first baseman out of Louisville. He kind of fits the profile of a Pavin Smith or, dare I say, a Garrett Cooper. But he's a bigger, bigger left-handed bat. Um, he's a first, first base only, possibly left field down the road, but most likely first base. Um, he's got incredible play discipline. He's got 56 to 36 or 57 to 36 walks to K's this year, which is pretty ridiculous. He's uh hasn't quite tapped into his raw pa- power that scouts expect him to have, but he's a player I could really see them looking at at 46. He could be a first base starting first baseman within two years. He's developed. He stepped in right after Brent, uh, Brendan McKay left three years ago in the draft. He's played all three years. Um, he's a great player. He's somebody I've really fallen in love with doing this research, and I'd hopefully like to, them to look that route at 46. And another guy I'd like to bring up is Matt Walner out of Southern Mississippi. He is a former first-round talent, but with tremendous power. Another left-handed bat. Of, I mean, the left-handed bats in this draft are just pretty ridiculous. If you look yeah, at this is the year to get one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Walner's almost has more power in the left-hand side than Bleday does. I mean, he's got 54 career home runs in 181 games. Uh, he could play both corner outfield positions, possibly first base down the road. His, I mean, he sits 95 on his fastball as well, so if you really want to go two ways, he possibly could be that reliever down the road. He's uh, shown some better walk numbers this year, but he's had some problems with the hit tool in the past few years. But he's a great player, and if we're going to talk about big power, he's the big power guy. Um, those are two names that are college bats that I really like a lot. And if we're going to just dabble again with the risky pick, and that's Trey, Trey Faltine out of Texas. He is a developing athlete who really doesn't have a position. Scouts see him as a shortstop second baseman going forward, but he's quite developed on the mound as well. He's got a 92-mile-an-hour fastball with movement and a curveball that just falls off the table. Uh, he's, a, he's a Texas commit with potential to have 60-grade tools across the board. Um, he's going to be hard to sign, and he's going to be a project coming into the year. But at 46, if we really hit on our first two picks, he's somebody I can see the Marlins looking at as a prep guy. He's just got the stuff you really just ooze over. I mean, he's got all kinds of talent and 6'3", 195 pounds. He's just something you want to play with when you get him on the field, you know. So uh, that's a guy that I think we can look at it as a third-round, I mean, second-round pick. Yeah, it's no surprise, but those are all real good names. I'm a big fan of Walner. I think that um, I think you you can if you get that power at that value, you take it. You try to develop that bat. It's from the left side. You could transition him to first if you need to. There's a lot about that profile. He's also big, six foot. I think six foot six, six foot five. He's he's a big guy, big profile, a lot of power. It's someone that I understand will be risky but someone that you can really work with moving forward and, and hopefully really tap into that power and develop that hit. And then you have yourself a threat for the middle of the order and someone that could be the answer at first, if Vaughn isn't the answer or if the Marlins, which I don't think the Marlins are going to be bad enough again, because of the pitching to get the first pick next year. But if, if Spencer Torkelson isn't the answer, then you have a guy in your system who you could put at first and could be that solution. All right. So, 
I have I have a question and then you know we'll start wrapping up and actually I want you to start thinking about how you would really lay out this draft. So I'm going to ask you if you were the GM and all of the options, it was a perfect scenario for you, right? Who you would get at 4, who you would get with the other two picks. So start thinking about that, but I also have a quick question. For the fan that says, "Listen, um I understand we need bats, but it still needs to be about a farm system and pitching, a farm system and pitching and forget that we have all the talents in, in the world." Is there anybody at all that you would consider at four that's a pitcher? Lodolo would get my only consideration, and that would probably even have to be at a underslot value. Yeah. Um, he's a talented guy. He's going to be an MLB starter for sure. Um, but an upper-level college starter like that, there's not, a, there's not a prep guy I would even consider in the top 15. Um, and... Lodolo would probably be the only route I'd get, but he just doesn't fit the profile that we need. Even if we need pitchers in our system, an upper level college guy is going to go spend a year or two in Jacksonville and then jump in a system that's got 11 guys ready to throw 100 innings next year in the majors. So um, Lodolo would be the only guy I'd actually agree with at four. I mean, I, I, but if they're going to go super under slot, I could see them looking at Barco at four, if we're going to go super duper under slot, you know, and then go that route or, or Jack lighter, if we're going to go under slot at four, but I really don't see a guy that they can really take a risk on right now there. Got you. And the reality is that then the prep arms and not even the prep arms. Well, yeah, later on probably are unsignable. Uh, If you get to like lighter at a later value, it's going to be, he's not going to sign. Um, He's getting wanting $4 million and right down or cba that's not gonna happen yeah it's just gonna deplete you and it's probably not even worth it at this point uh especially if you didn't go under slot then you're really not even able at all so the reality is that if you're looking for pitching if you're looking for pitching in this draft it's a bad year to look for pitching number one and number two i don't see the marlins i don't see the marlins doing that you know i see the marlins exactly like we focused on hitting they should be doing the same exactly like we focus on that hit power combo they should be doing the same. So I'm going to imagine um, that there's some consensus almost with everyone that has this conversation that the Marlins will likely not look pitching. But I wanted to have that conversation because there are some that say pitching should always be what you're looking at. Um, yeah, and I agree. If there is someone, it's Lodolo. But if not, you know, it's just it's not happening. All right. So how do you how do you think it lines up or how would you line it up if you if you had everything and you were able to control the variables and they were there for you, what would you do at the first three picks? My perfect first three picks in two weeks would, would start with at four, it'd be JJ Bidet. I'm going to double down on that as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's the best value at four. Um, just, just take that as you may. Um, I think he's going to be the pick. I would really love for him to be the pick. Uh, I think he would um, be an immense talent in our system. Uh, I pick 35. Again, I'm going to double down. It's going to be Hunter Barco. I think he would be the best choice we could go if we run talk about pitching. Um, he's a prep pitcher with all the talent in the world who could be a first rounder in any in any other year. So if we get him at 35 for somewhere close to our slot value, that would be a huge win for us. And at 46, um, it's going to come down to two players for me, but I'm going to ultimately lean on Matt Walner. You like him as well. I talked about him a little bit ago. He's just a big power bat. He fits the system. He could be the BPA at that at that number. Um, he's a he's a great he's a great player. I mean, if the hit tool is really there, then he could be even better um, power tool in our in our system. So those are my first three picks. And if they don't go that route, Greg Jones at forty six would be awesome as well. But um, 
Yeah, that's me for sure. Sounds good. All right, so I'll go backwards. So, yes, I do love Walner. I'm going to have him at 46 as well. Like all the reasons that we have already reiterated, he would be the guy for me. Although, I'm actually going to not do that. I'm going to not go Walner because you know what I'm going to do at number one, right? So, what I'm going to actually say is someone that we actually didn't talk about is Nassim Nunez. Okay. And like you know, it's exciting. I, I think I got the name right, Nassim Nunez. It sounds pretty fair. He is uh, basically your stereotypical uh, individual who's going to be able to stick at short, hopefully. Okay, and has an well enough speed, has okay hitting and contact rate, but will never really give you much power. I'm okay with going there at 46 if it's something that is um, again, it's near slot. You're not overspending for him, and he allows you, and he's young, 18, and he allows you to have that switch bat at short. So that's where I'm going to go with that because you know that, number one, I'm going to eventually go Vaughn. Number two, I'm going to go Barco, and I'm going to stick with Barco. I think that that's unanimous for us. I think everyone on Marlins Twitter has caught on to this train. I think we understand the value that he would have for you there, and the fact that he has three-plus pitches is all that I really need to know that it's at 35, that's, that's what I want. And then at number one, I'm going to do the maybe unwise but risky selection of going with Vaughn. I think that I'm going to stick with the fact that I want a high hit tool, a high plate discipline, even though, again, really walk to K in the college level shouldn't be held as high a value as it is you know, at the major league level or at the minor league level um, because of the competition you're facing. But still, there's something about that that's intriguing for me um the power or the ballpark factor is something that i've looked at as well so it's not like you're alone on that island um we're not sure that the power will translate as much as it would have in other stadiums and in other areas of the country but when i look at his swing there is some there's some pre-movement there's some movement before his swing but i just i think there's enough there to translate across the minor leagues and to see him honestly in two years in two or two and a half years right in the smack middle, even though he probably wouldn't start off there, of the lineup when this team is ready to compete. There's something very intriguing to me about getting the most advanced bat, at least right now, of uh, the draft. And and so I would go I would go Vaughn, Barco, and Nunez just to get that mid-athlete, center, you know, shortstop, maybe go to center field um, with that later pick. But I would surely be happy with your draft too. I would be thrilled yeah. if they got Walner Barker, Barco and JJ Blade. Because at the end of the day, JJ Blade honestly probably even has a higher ceiling. There's more you could do with him. His swing is beautiful. I think my my comp that I put on here was uh was it Paul O'Neill? Yeah, Paul O'Neill. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's I'm okay with that. <laughs> like if you give me a Paul O'Neill career, I'm really happy with that pick at number four. So I, I think that the point really here is the Marlins cannot go wrong unless if they go severely under slot. If they go severely under slot, that means that there has to be a plan in place for 35 and 46. And then hopefully they attribute and they continue that plan. But man, give me that bat at four, whether it's Vaughn, whether it's Blade, and then hopefully give me some value at 35 and 46, because this is the year to really be able to turn around the franchise as well as obviously next year. Absolutely. I mean, for as weak as this draft is in certain areas, it's extremely strong in the areas that the Marlins need. Yep. I mean, power bats, left-handed bats, speed up the middle if we're going to still go that route, and there's there's value pitchers late. I mean, we can go a bunch of different routes in this draft, but every route we should go can lead to probably some immense success in this in this franchise. So this has got to be the year we really start making the moves to be the better franchise that we want to be. 
Yep, it's going to be fun. June 3rd is right around the corner. All right. It is always a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us. Sorry that Ethan couldn't join us today, but see, I told you that Ian was going to come through, right? Just uh, just amazing. We are going to have, hopefully, a prospect coming up next week. We're uh, not going to exactly say the name quite yet, but trust me, it's someone that you're going to be very excited to talk about, and I know we're going to be excited to talk with. As always, make sure you like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. We appreciate you. Ian, thank you, brother, and go fish. Absolutely. Appreciate y'all guys.